we're going to be doing Wednesday nights. And I thought we could go through Genesis, starting at the beginning, and uh, see how that goes. Dwight will be back on Sunday, and, um, but uh, for Wednesday nights. And so I encourage you, as such, if you're so inclined, you can uh, always read ahead. And if you're so inclined, you can always have a notebook with you. And if you see something popping out at you in the scriptures, or if you see repeated things, or you see things that tend to give you understanding, jot it down. And uh, we can, uh, you know, it's good to, to have your own study ahead and, and all. So tonight really is just going to be an introduction. Genesis is such a powerful book. Um, as always, whenever we do the in-depth study, we'll, we'll try and do observation, interpretation, and then application so that uh, we let the Bible interpret the Bible, and we let the Bible apply to our lives. And the uh, interesting thing about when we do that, the first thing we've got to do is find context, and then maybe find out who the author is, and then maybe find out why he wrote it, if that's in there. Um, and also, whether or not it's a book of history, or a book of poetry, or a book of prophecy. And we want to identify that, and we'll kind of get into that as well. But the very beginning of that would be finding the context. And what's interesting is everything else has its context in Genesis. Genesis only has one context, and that is God. And because he was there in the beginning. In the first two chapters of the Bible, there are two words used for God. In Genesis 1, 1 through uh, 2, verse 3, it's Elohim. And that's mostly used in the Bible for the one true God. But every once in a while, you'll find that word Elohim being used for a a God, small g, or a goddess, or a, for rulers, or judges, or divine ones, or angels, you might see that. But out of 2,500 times, um, the word Elohim is used for the one true God 2,350 times. So that's the primary use of this word. But it's interesting, Elohim, like cherubim, instead of a cherub, um, cherubim is plural. And same with Elohim. El, Ohim, is God or gods, if you will. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, if you go to Genesis 1, verses, uh, verse 20, where am I? Verse 26. It says, uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. There it is again, plural. Um, to find out who this us is or who this our is, we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And let's go to Matthew 3. And really, I didn't read through it, but we're just starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as uh, many have said, the first time I heard it was Chuck Smith. He says, if you can get past verse 1, the rest of the Bible should be no problem. In the beginning, God, first of all. Uh, fool says in his heart there is no God, but then created the heavens and earth. So that's everything. But Matthew three sixteen and 17, it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. If you go back to Genesis 1, verse 2, um, and you'll probably just keep your finger there as we flip through a dozen passages tonight, but um, it says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So now we have God, and we have the Spirit of God. That might lend a little bit to the pluralness that we see in Elohim. And who are the us and the our that we're going to make man in our image? John 1, if you go to the next uh, passage, the Gospel of John. And we're going to do a few verses here. So the Spirit of God is mentioned in both places there. Now in John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now we have another party that was with God in the beginning. 
part of that we and that us. Um, it says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. And in him was life, and life was the light of men. Skipping to verses 14 through 18, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of the fullness we have all received, of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. Well, the only begotten Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So, who made all things? Well, Jesus did, right? That's what it says plainly. The Son, the Word of God, who was with God at the beginning. And then going to Hebrews 3, we looked at this Sunday, but uh, kind of bears weight here as we're talking differently now about who was there at the beginning. So it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the worlds. There it is. Whom being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, well, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, who made the worlds? Jesus did. Who upholds all things? Jesus does. And where does he sit now? At the right hand of majesty. And so um, in uh, Colossians 1, if you want to keep going that direction, um, back, or back a little ways here, a few pages, just 15 and 17, or and 16, 17. Again, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible. Notice this, whether thrones or dominions, visible or invisible, principalities or powers, visible or invisible, all things were created through him, and not only that, they're created for him, it says. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So did he only make the visible creation? No, Jesus created the invisible creation. Also thrones, principalities, powers. Uh, the word powers is exousia, which means uh, strength, authority, and liberty, actually. That word power actually has that connotation of liberty with it. The power of choice, whether it's principalities or powers. You know, and who was this all made for? Well, Jesus Christ. And why did what did Jesus say of himself? We'll get to that. But notice that it's it's a it's that free will choice or the ability to choose is considered a power, a, a person, an independence, a autonomy of a person. And many people are in slavery. Many many people are are in situations where they're in bondage. And um, nevertheless, when it comes right down to the individual and the choices and their thoughts and and um, you know, it says that uh, that is the power that he had created, giving man the ability to have his own will and his own choice and his own um, autonomy, if you will. So that's what that word means, uh, exousia. Now, again, what did Jesus say of himself? And for this, we're going to do a little uh, part of John, Gospel of John, chapter 8. And by way of background, while you're turning there, um, Jesus was teaching in the temple. And uh, he went up to the temple early one morning and the scribes and the Pharisees had, had already tried to take him out, but the soldiers that they sent to take him out, the officers, listened to Jesus and they were amazed and they couldn't arrest him. So they were you know, frustrated with that the night before. And so the following morning they go up to the temple 
And while he was teaching, they brought a woman caught in adultery to see if he could be contradicted in the law. They wanted to see what he would do now. And all Jesus did was he began to write on the ground. And um, he would, he would uh, continue to write on the ground. And as he did, one by one, these accusers that brought this woman um, were convicted. It says, uh, by their own conscience, it says. And they began to leave till only Jesus and the woman were left. Now, this is a separate Bible study, and it's an awesome Bible study in one day. But the, the idea here is Jesus then goes on to, to say he's his own witness, and he's also the witness of the Father, and uh, spoke of, by, of the Father's witness. And he was going where no one could follow, and he would be lifted up, speaking of the cross. Well, that brings us to verse 31. These Pharisees now were trying to, uh, you know, they're, they're agitated. They're, they're, they're frustrated that they can't get at him, and they can't uh, get him to stumble in his words. And so it's already starting to get a little bit heated up. There's a little bit of road rage or temple rage going on, if you will. Um, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, though, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, they answered, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anybody. How can you say you will make me free? Well, now they brought up Abraham, eh? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sins is a slave to sin. And a slave doesn't abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. And I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you, you do what you have seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, well, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we are not born of fornication. You know, it's funny because everybody knew that Mary was pregnant before they got married to Joseph, or she got married to Joseph. So there's something else going on here, a word he's being called, a name he's being called. You know, he describes Abraham's descendants should be. And they accuse him, or they answered him, that they were descendants of Abraham. And then, it, you know, trying to uh, basically boil down to who do you think you are? We know where you came from. Well, Jesus said to them, uh, or they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God, they say. And truly, God was the father of the nation of Israel and all. But uh, Jesus said to them, Well, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Well, because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. And he is a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. It's all he's got in him. For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you believe me? Or why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. You know, uh, this is where he gets into describing exactly who he is. And, you know, you can keep this verse in mind and mark it for the Mormons when they come and the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come and, and all of those. Verse 48, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Uh, it's just getting pretty, you know, you can't do it justice trying to read it. These guys are in their, each other's face, basically. They're in the temple. That's their domain, and he's there teaching. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, then he shall never see death. Well, then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham's dead and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, Jesus answered and said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. If I honor my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. 
Well, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You're yet fifty years old, and you've seen Abraham? Well, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And at that point, they took up stones to throw at Jesus, but he hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the, right through the middle of him, went past, past by. You know, um, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And before Abraham was, I am. When God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 17, the word there used is the Lord. Instead of Elohim, it's the word Jehovah. Same as beginning in Genesis 2 verse 4, um, it's now Jehovah, Elohim, the existing one, the Lord God. So when Jesus says, I am, he points to Exodus 3. When Elohim, it says in Exodus 3, appeared to Moses in the midst of the burning bush and called himself, I am that I am. And then he says, when Jesus, uh, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. This is Elohim, Jesus is Elohim, and Jesus is Jehovah. This is why the Pharisees wanted to stone him, you know, since they knew exactly that Jesus was saying that he was God. So, like I said, if you keep this one handy, for when the cults come around that say, well, Jesus had a brother, and maybe Jesus was, you know, God of this world, but there's a hundred worlds out there, and so forth, you, you can have this verse this in your, your back pocket. That's uh, John chapter 8. Colossians 2, if you'd like to turn. Uh, Colossians 2, 8 through 10. Paul warning the Colossians about that very thing. People are going to come around and knock on your door and they're going to try and persuade you that Jesus is something other than what the Bible says he is. In uh, 8, 9, and 10, Beware lest anybody cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Here's mention of the Godhead. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. The word Godhead, that same word is used in Romans 1, and also in Acts 17, when they're speaking of Jesus being God with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. It's in this context now that we can go back and we can read in the beginning and we can know at that time that during the creation of all things, you know, Jesus was there. He is God's word. He is the word of God, became flesh. The spirit is there. Same spirit that came out of the, out of the sky and with a great voice declared Jesus Christ is my son. In him I am well pleased, the Father said. Now the word created is the word bara, and it just doesn't mean, you know, you put something together that was already there, or you use some, you know, uh, dirt of your own to put things together. It means literally out of nothing. Not even atoms, not even gases, not even, you know, light waves or whatever you want to say. Um, there was nothing, not a single thing. And then God created out of that. That's that word bara. Now what's the authority or the proof for any of this? Because again, we're talking about Genesis 1 being the context, or the book of Genesis really being the context of the rest of everything. The universe and creation. Uh, Genesis is the foundation for everything, including our faith. Um, if that's the case, what is the authority or the proof for this? What did God show or what did God do to prove this? Well, Prophecy, and then the miracles. Prophecy, he said ahead of time what he would do. If God's outside of time, well, then he can say what he's going to do. And then when it comes to pass, exactly the way he said it, it's a miracle. But he, only he can do this. Now, only God who's outside of time knows the future, and only God who's over, sovereign over his creation can do a new thing and tell people about it ahead of time. Do something supernatural create something out of nothing. Now, yes, there are supernatural things that the devil can do and his demons can do, but only if God allows it and only with what's there. They're not creating nothing. They're not creating anything out of nothing. There is no bara involved when the enemy 
does his miracles. There are supernatural things that, that he can do. If you go to Job 1, um, if you're all familiar, we can take a look at it. Just looking at the first 12 verses, we see an example of exactly that. There is a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and the one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons, three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now his sons would go out to feast in their houses and each one on the appointed day would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the days of feasting had ended and run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Job is a, you know, he did this regularly, so there must have been regular festivals there, but Job was the kind of guy that, not uh, just to keep himself from sin, but he was out trying to cover and uh, taking care of his kids, sacrificing for them. And uh, so there was a day came along when the sons of God, it says, came to present themselves um, before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, well, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it, just moseying around, looking around. And the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? Well, he did. <laughs> that, that, there's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, one who got, uh, fears God and shuns evil. Well, Satan answered, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? And you've blessed the work of his hands and possessions and have increased the land. But I tell you, now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. Well, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your power, all that he has is in your power. He gave that to Satan. Uh, Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Boy, if we knew what was going on behind the scenes, you know. Well, and, uh, you know, he did go out and... uh, he went in the day his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking and wine in their oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside him. These Sabians raided them, took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still talking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword alone, I have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people. They are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job arose from his Uh, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I'll return there. And the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Only as far as God allows. But boy, Satan took it all, didn't he? You know? So as, as God allows and no more. God's sovereign over all his creation, including fallen angels. And one day we'll cast him into the lake of fire for eternity. And never more to tempt and torment anybody. You know, Job in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you know, he came back before the Lord, wandering to and fro. And again, the Lord asked him, have you considered my servant Job? And, uh, well, you know, he shuns evil, still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all the man has, he'll give for his life. Not before this could Satan touch him. But now the Lord said, behold, he's in your hand. 
just spare his life. You can you touch his skin. And he did. He gave him boils and sores. And yet he did not take his life. So the, the idea here is, yes, only God can work miracles. And only God can prophesy and say what's going to happen ahead of time. But uh, we see miracles. You know, um, same as today, Satan's been defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he still walks around, looking around the world, seeking to steal, to kill, to destroy. But he can only do what God allows and no more. And um, he's been defeated. You and I are more than conquerors over anything that the enemy could do. And uh, we just got to learn not to listen to his, his uh, voice, temptations, and not uh, follow after the temptations that he lays in front of us. You know, Satan may be allowed to push things around in this physical realm, but he cannot create anything out of nothing. If you want to go to 2 Timothy, there's a, another example where Paul is telling Timothy about these two characters, Janus and Jambres, who had, uh, were in Pharaoh's court. They were some of Pharaoh's uh, sorcerers. And so in verse... Second uh, Timothy 3, verses 8 and 9. He talks about these guys. And it's in the context of the perilous times that's coming and the type of people who are, are lovers of themselves and lovers of money in verse uh, 1 and 2. And, and uh, unloving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness but deny its power. And such a person turn away. For of this sort are those that creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins and led away by various lusts. Well, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, just like Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further. For their folly was made manifest to all as theirs was also. In other words, they only go so far. And eventually theirs will be folly. The story is when, when Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh, and we're going to show Pharaoh a sign, Moses, uh, Aaron's rod, he threw to the ground, it turned into a serpent. Well, Janus and Jambres conjured up their own serpents, threw their sticks on the ground, and there was two of them. What, what are we going to do? Well, the Lord allowed his snake to basically devour these other two. Their folly came to an end. They can only go so far and no further. Everything is in God's hands. Now Satan's going to use great you know, signs and wonders in Matthew 24, the reasons to deceive and cause many to grow cold and fall away. But only God can prophesy before it happens and create a new thing himself. So God created all things, visible and invisible, even Satan. Now if you want to turn to... Um, Isaiah 40, um, all this is kind of an introduction to Genesis. Well, we're going to run into that serpent in Genesis 3, but uh, he can only do so much. He's been defeated. He's a created. Remember, Jesus, all things visible and invisible, principalities and powers. That includes fallen angels, and they are completely subject to the Lord God. But God wants Israel to remember who created. And there's a reason. Why is creation so important for us? Why is creation really part of the, the witness that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1? Um, in Isaiah 40, uh, 40 in verses uh, 21 to 22, um, God's dealing with Israel in this stretch of Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 all the way to 46, he's pleading with them over and over and over again. And in different ways he brings up, because I'm the God who created everything. And he's pleading with them. In verses uh, 21 and 22, it's, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the world? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Then down to uh, chapter 41, verse 4, it continues. He's trying to comfort them. Chapter 40 begins with, Comfort ye my people, trying to draw them back to himself. And so verses 40, in chapter 41, verse 4, same thing. Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? He's the father of Israel. And I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he. Doesn't that sound familiar? First and last, Alpha and Omega. Um, Going to chapter uh, 41, verses 21 and 23. This has to do with comparing to idols. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. And let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that they may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare the things to come. Show the things are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, yes, do good or evil, that they may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. In other words, these idols can't do anything, and the people that choose them in Israel, when they have the one true God who can do miracles, who can restore them and heal them, well, it's an abomination. You know, same for us. Why follow after idols, you know, whatever they may be? It's an abomination to the Lord when we have the Creator living inside of us. Concerning the Messiah in the next chapter, 42, 1 through 9, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And he will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice and truth, and he will... Uh, not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlines shall wait for his law. Verse 5, Thus says God, the Lord, who created heavens and earth and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth, that's which is to come, uh, or which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, spirit to those who walk on it. Well, I of the Lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, and I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I declare, before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. What authority do we have that Genesis is the account given by God? That, it, in fact, it was him that was there? Well, he's the creator. He keeps his word. We have prophecy and we have miracles when he brings the things to pass. Um, in 44, he talks about uh, Cyrus uh, concerning wisdom of this world. Um, 24 through 28. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives designers mad, uh, diviners mad, and designers too probably, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry you up, dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, or of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. And Cyrus came along, and in fact, in the book of Ezra, Cyrus fulfilled this prophecy. But concerning the wisdom of the world, you know, you want to have uh, the diviners and you want to have the wise men. and The Lord turns that all into foolishness. It's foolishness to the Lord, the wisdom of this world. And, um, you know, we all are counted as foolish by the people in this world just for believing in God, believing in an invisible God 
believing that all this is creation and not evolved from you know, a big bang and everything that came out of that. So he's the redeemer of Israel in chapter 45 and 46. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so we can apply all this to our lives, the foolishness of this world. You know, God's wisdom, in fact, the wisest wisdom of this world is considered foolishness to God. The fact that he's the creator of all things, he's a comfort. He makes idolatry and the wisdom of the world into foolishness. He glorifies our Redeemer. And when he talks about glorifying Jesus, he says, I'm the one who created all this. I'm the one who stretched out the heavens. And I'm going to glorify my Redeemer. What he's saying is, have some respect. You know, have some honor for, for the Lord God who created all things. That's uh, the authority that the book of Genesis has its context in because it came first before anything else. That's kind of my point. Now the next, um, you know, we have that one who we can put our trust in. But the next point I wanted to make is now who is the writer? And it's important. We'll see why. And again, this is kind of an introduction, and we're just kind of going through the foundation of the book of Genesis so that we can lean on this now as we continue to go through it. And we can always remember, we, there's no doubt on the Creator and His ability and all that. So, who is the writer? It says, Moses was commanded to write down God's covenants and statutes regarding Israel. Everything God spoke to Moses was written, and this was God's covenant with Israel. Now, there's those that contend that, well, that's true for Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but Genesis, Moses wasn't there, you know, maybe it was handed down, maybe we don't know if he was actually the one who wrote it. Well, God spoke to Moses, and everything that Moses heard from God directly, that's what he wrote down. Now, the account of creation, I mean, Adam didn't write nothing down that we know of, you know, and so all that happened in chapter 1 of Genesis, there's no other witnesses for except God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so when God spoke to Moses and said to write these covenants down, um, everything he said to him. Now, in, in the book of Genesis is the whole account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that was all established you know, by Moses when he uh, came in Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus, when the law came along. Let's just take the, the first seven, or the six-day creation and the seven-day rest. Well, the only way they would know about a Sabbath rest would be is if they had known that there was a six-day creation and on the seventh day they rested. And so anything that had to do with the Sabbath in Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus are full of laws and ordinances regarding the Sabbath. And so that all came from from Genesis chapter 1, um, including the account of Abraham also, all the statutes. Now, the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 31, we don't need to turn there, but basically it's been commanded, Moses, the Lord commanded Moses, now you read the Torah, you read the law, he would say, and throughout Israel, and it would be done every year. And so they all heard that. Was it just the Ten Commandments that were on the tablets that came down from the, from the ark? Well, no, it was all of the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the whole uh, law that was there, including it wouldn't make sense for the Sabbath to be in there or Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be in there with the covenants if it wasn't including Genesis. So I say this all just simply for those that tend to contend about Moses being the author because anytime you want to know uh, a book and study a book, you need to know who the author was and who wrote it. And we'll get into a little more of that. Also, David, when he passed on, uh, well, first even Joshua, when uh, Moses left the scene and Joshua came on the scene, Moses commanded him and to read all of the Torah. When David passed all of the kingdom on to Solomon, David says, you know, read the, the law, all of it, to the people. Solomon, keep that and continue to bring that before the people and keep the Lord before the people. Well, in the Psalms, there's more written about creation than most anywhere else. Um, many of the Psalms that David wrote, he's talking about creation. And so that being 
what he had access to, book of Genesis, all throughout. In the New Testament, in John chapter 1, we read earlier, declares that the word was at creation, and the law was given through Moses, it said, and but grace through Jesus, and Jesus was with the Father in Genesis 1. Now in Hebrews 11, we can turn there. All of this is a witness. All of this is a testimony. First of all, who the author is, and we'll find out why it's important. Verses 1 through 22, uh, we'll just read through it. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, for the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now by faith Abel, that was in Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, the, uh, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch, who walked with God, was taken away, and he did not see death, and, it was not, and he was not found because God had taken him. For before he is taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God, first of all, must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, what God? The God who, you know, helps you get your, you know, hot car or your your uh, bills paid, or the God who you take to the casino with you to hopefully rub the lamp and get a little extra something out of it. You know, there's there's really no no doubt that he's talking about the God of the creator of the universe, the God who is the creator of the universe and all. And so it goes on through, um, by faith, Abraham from the book of Genesis um, obeyed when he was told to go out of the place he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out. By faith, he dwelt in the land, waited for the city. By faith, Sarah also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child. Going through all the stories of the book of Genesis, these all died in faith, not having received, in verse 13, I'm sorry, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, heavenly country. That before God is not ashamed, or therefore God is not ashamed to be called God, their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham's faith. Then it goes on to talk in 23 about Moses' faith and how they overcame. And in 23 through 31, it, uh, getting up to even into the book of Joshua and things that Moses himself actually saw and wrote and declared having that faith. Well, you know, all witnesses and written testimony by Moses in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses known as the Pentateuch or the Torah or the Law, sometimes referred to. Um, Jesus referred to Moses throughout his ministry. Who's the author of the book of Genesis? Well, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, Jesus cites Genesis 2, verse 24, concerning marriage. He says, was, you know, marriage is from, ordained from Genesis chapter 2. If you want to turn to Mark 12, 24 to 27, some of these guys were coming along and still trying to trick Jesus into stumbling at his words. I mean, out, trying to outsmart the creator of the mind is always interesting. So they were trying to... Uh, to stumble him up on the resurrection and also they had this scenario set up where this uh, uh, guy and his wife were married while he died and so she married uh, his brother to pick up the offspring for for him and so on and so forth down through seven brothers took this first wife and then finally dying he left no offspring well the second took her and so forth Anyway, therefore, in the resurrection, they want to know when they rise, whose wife is she going to be? Okay, for all seven have had her as wife. 
Well, here's what Jesus says. He says, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither get married nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, they rise. And have you not read in the book of Moses, the burning bush, the passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so you are therefore mistaken. You know, Jesus also confirmed Moses as the author about the patriarchs at the burning bush. And just turn in a few pages for Luke, verses 24, is the book of Genesis, the word of God. And I'm saying all this because it's going to be challenged. We're going to talk about some literal days. We're going to talk about some 24-hour days as opposed to millennia. We're going to talk about why a light year is so many, you know, how far you can travel in a year, how far light travels in a year. I wish I could travel as far as light. But so they're measuring light years and they're looking at stars that are millions and billions of light years away, which means that they've long extinguished before we ever got to see them. Well, that's what they're talking about. So we've got to sort that out when we're going through Genesis. Before we do that, we need to know what the foundation is. foundation is Genesis is God's word as he said it. And Jesus says so in, in Luke 24, verses uh, 27 and 44. Um, again, uh, these guys that are just not believing him and talking about having to, to go to the cross. Um, and then finally he opens their eyes. It's the road to Emmaus. Uh, actually, I misread that. Anyway, so this is the, we read this on Sunday as well, the road to Emmaus, when their hearts burned within him. But notice what he says in verse 27. It says, And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures had to say concerning himself. And in verse 44, it says, The scriptures were open to these guys. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Well, we read and we will read in Genesis chapter 2, that Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Who is that? Well, if Jesus is expounding to these guys all scripture concerning him, that's going to be one of them. And therefore, that what I'm trying to say is um, Genesis is clearly the word of God as it was written. Why is it so important to know who wrote Genesis? Well, Jesus is the one who stressed that serious. If you turn to uh, John 5, Actually, just a couple of pages from where we just were. John 5, verses 46 through 47. He's talking about the fourfold witness back in 31, talking about witnessing of himself. And there's another who bears witness of him. But he gets to there and, and, you know, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words and so in other words Jesus is saying if Moses is the reason that we have to believe who Jesus was because Moses was the one that prophesied who he was and it's even more so in Luke if you want to go back a little bit to Luke 16 19 through 31 is kind of where I'm kind of trying to get to with all of this why is it serious why is it serious to, to have Moses? What about miracles? You know, if I showed you a miracle, would you believe? Um, you know, the things that people will put their trust in because of what they see. Well, in Luke sixteen nineteen through 31, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and so it was that the beggar died and was carried, to the angels, to Aram's, carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. 
The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip his tongue in, in uh, dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Listen to what Abraham says. He says, Son, remember that your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus received evil things. Well, now he's comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all that, this, between us there is this great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said to him, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Well, what does he say? He says, But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, well, neither are they going to repent if they're persuaded, even though one were to rise from the dead. What's the point? The point being is we have the word of God, we have Moses who prophesies. Whatever you see with your eyes, you may or may not be able to trust that. The only way you should trust it is if it lines up with the word of God. And what he's saying is Moses, he's the author of Genesis. We need to understand that so that we realize how important it is that we believe Moses and not necessarily what we see with our eyes. Now, we talked about this on Sunday too. We'll get to it in a little bit. But Jesus declared that seeing someone raised from the dead would not persuade. And he gave absolute authority in Matthew 5, 18, saying that he came to fulfill the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. Every word. Does that include Genesis 1? Does that include Genesis 1, 1, that God created the heavens and the earth? Does it say that he created the day and the night in a huge pass of time so that there was enough time for the stars to get out there and the light to get? You'll read all that. We're going to go through that. This is the authority. Every I dotted and every T crossed is what is in the Word of God, and that's all we need, and that's what we need to respect, what's there. So Jesus, being fully God, fully man, declares Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit by saying this. You know, and Peter says the Bible didn't come by the will of men, but as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. When you study the Bible, there's a thing called the Timothy Rule from 2 Timothy 3, if you want to turn there. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. When Paul was raising this young pastor up to be able to have confidence, you know, we need to rest on the word. Everything else is going to be shaky. Everybody's going to let you down. Your brothers and sisters, your mom and dad, your kids, people sitting in the pew next to you, everybody sooner or later will let you down one way or another. Sitting up here, probably more than the rest of you. It's just because we're human. But this is the Word of God. This is dependable. Uh, Some have this simple rule when studying the Bible, verses 16 and 17. He tells Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely and thoroughly equipped for every good word. Well, doctrine, what's it profitable for? That's the teaching and the precepts of God and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is the only begotten Son of God. That's doctrine. That's profitable. What's reproof? Surprisingly, what reproof is is simply giving the evidence that brings somebody to turn, to get them to turn. Just what, to reprove somebody, you think well, it's got to have something to do with you know, discipline or something. No, it means present the evidence that will allow them to turn. What is correction? Well, correction is to restore, it says the definition, what is upright or in the right state to improve life, to improve character. That's correction, to restore back to being upright. What's instruction? That word's interesting. It simply means to nurture, and if necessary, chasten, to bring to somebody to complete and to be equipped. And it says in righteousness, and that word righteousness, how we ought to be, 
And what it means really there in Timothy is acceptable to God. And this is, in stu- this is important for studying Genesis because many believers seek to accommodate science, scientific theories, philosophies, concepts, ideas, because they don't understand something, they want to figure it out and be able to explain it to somebody, sometimes with good intentions. So uh, when you're seeking to, to interpret the book of Genesis, you know, all these speculations about God, truth, life, creation, living creatures, even marriage. What's said about marriage comes out of Genesis. Others want to compromise, twist, and wrestle with Scripture to make it fit their, their own limited knowledge. You've seen that. Um, that really becomes idolatry, doesn't it? Since uh, they seek to make God into their image, what they can understand, rather than let God transform them so that they become more like him, they become godly. And that's in Romans 12 too. They want to bend scriptures to fit science rather than build science from the foundation of God's word. Well, they just discovered this star that does the, you know, well, it's got to be in the Bible somewhere. And if it's not, well, then we got to make the Bible fit what they just showed us. No, we start with the Bible. And they need to make that fit, what the Bible says. God created everything. Hear that or Genesis 1-1 ain't true. Like you say, if you can get past Genesis 1-1. So God not only divinely inspired what's written, but watches over every dot and every T, as we talked about. His word testifies of his son, Jesus Christ, and that he's the word and was with him at the beginning. He's fulfilled by the law and the prophets. All these things are in jeopardy if you're not going to believe the account in Genesis. Hold this up to what so many say about Jesus today. There's all kinds of wacky ideas. Who, what does Oprah think he is? A, consci- a Christ consciousness. That's what we have from Oprah. How many people does she influence? What are you going to say to somebody who's, who's influenced by that? What about the, the shack where you know, Jesus was this you know, hippie dude that kind of you know, treated God like he was his buddy and, and all. And now we know truthfully their relationship was a love relationship from the foundations of the world and before from all eternity. But the misrepresentation of the Lord and, and books like that are, are all over the place. And then that misrepresents what it is for you and I to do as believers. Now we don't know. Are we supposed to live a purpose-driven life? Or are we supposed to be inspired by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit to, to obey his leading and, and live that life? Some would say that instead of this being, you know, we need to know what kind of literature this is. And they don't want to deal with what creation says flat out because of science or whatever uh, philosophy that they have. And so they want to say, well, it was poetry. It was, uh, you know, sort of an imagery, a painting, kind of a, a way to present what happened over millions of years or just what the, the early uh, people who thought that they couldn't figure things out, so they came up with a God. And so Genesis is just the story they all made up. Well, the book of Genesis is history. And throughout the rest of the Bible, including Jesus, we saw earlier tonight, the book of Genesis is history. It's not poetry. It has prophecy in it, but the book of Genesis is history. Um, Some would say it's not literal in parts, and they say they can allegorize it in order to fit their limited understanding, again, making God into their image, and this is where, you know, denominations come from. But if you can do that, if you can change whatever scripture you feel like that you don't understand into an allegory, well, then who's the authority? What has the authority? Anybody can interpret it, each to their own liking. And then who gets to say then finally what it means? Well, this is where you get all kinds of denominations because they couldn't just wait and see that God would keep his word and bring Israel into the land, for one example. Now you have all kinds of preterists and denominations that believe who's over there on the uh, eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea are a bunch of terrorists, and they got nothing to do with God. They're, they're God killers, and there's anti-Semitism just rampant because, you know, they don't like the scriptures that they see, and they couldn't wait until the Lord brought around his, his prophecy to bring them back in the land in 1948. And uh, so they came up with their, and now they won't even depart from it because there it is obvious, and we can all see it, and yet they won't depart from it. Um, so these theologians, um, leaders of our day, they're trying to accommodate fossils 
and galaxies at light years away. And they'd much rather honor men and be honored by men than honor God themselves and, and decide that they're going to believe the account of Moses in the book of Genesis um, and the account of the Holy Spirit. So, um, with all the time segments and sequences that we're going to talk about, the measurements and the details, taking them face value as they're written. Scripture for any common man to observe plainly. You know what it says, uh, if you've ever heard this before, it's kind of nice. I don't know if you put it on your fridge. It's not necessarily scriptural, but it's how we're going to look at Scripture. If the plain sense makes sense, we should seek no other sense, lest we make nonsense. If you haven't heard that, I, I first heard that not too long ago, and everybody says, ah, it's been around forever. Okay, well, I just never heard that one. But so take the passage in its plain context and take it plainly for what it says. You know, if something else in Scripture sheds lights on it, light on it, then let's, let's do that, and we'll do that the best we can. What does God desire in 1 Timothy 2.5? We've got just a few more to look at. Well, he exhorting uh, Timothy to uh, pray Give thanks for all those in authority. It's acceptable to God. But why? Because he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. And that man is Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. What does God desire? For all to be saved and Come to the knowledge of the truth. Where are we going to get that knowledge? Why, you know, what do we, uh, what do we do to be sure? And you're all familiar with Acts seventeen eleven, where the Bereans went home and they'd listen to Paul, but they'd go home and they'd search the scripture to see if what Paul said was true. What do we do to be sure? Search the scriptures. Why is it so important? And for this, we got to go to Second Peter three, and I think that might be our last verse for tonight. Second Peter 3, and we're looking at verse 16. He's encouraging and backing up to 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our brother, beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of things, Notice, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you all fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But what does it say? Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to him be glory both now and forever. You know, some are going to twist the scriptures. How are we going to grow in knowledge? Well, tonight we've already learned a lot about Jesus. We've learned how to approach Genesis with confidence. And, um, you know, we have the Bible and it's trustworthy. On Sunday we talked about that. You know, how everything that's there, nothing needs to be added to it. No Book of Mormon. You know, if, if I were to be stuck on a desert island somewhere and I can only take three books with me, I'm thinking it would be the Bible, a concordance to help me look stuff up, and a dictionary because I don't speak Greek. Because it really is enough to sustain. Man shall live by bread alone. and, and uh, Or not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God, you know. So we don't start with man's observable science and bend scripture to accommodate and fit our limited understanding. We're going to start with the scriptures and we'll build from there on that. We'll start with what he says, not what science says. And, um, you know, don't ask what your astrophysicist is going to predict from what he saw light years ago. That's what they're trying to do. They're shooting these uh, this telescope out, you know, a hundred times farther than the Hubble. And in doing so, they're seeking what they literally said. They're seeking to find how the expanding universe is giving an idea how they will know, looking back then, what the very origins are. So they're not only predicting the future, they're saying from that we're going to know what the very beginning is. Well, don't ask them from what he saw light years ago 
ask God what he's going to do. Because he did say he's got some stuff he's going to do. And that proves who he is. You know, he's going to continue to create and work miracles and change this physical world as he sees fit, but all to his glory, not to the, to the uh, gratifying of somebody who's trying to impress other people. So why is it important to have the correct account of creation in a nutshell? Well, because his mercy endures forever, that mercy that wants to draw us to himself and salvation is in Christ Jesus. Amen. So an introduction and really just a foundation. I'm sure this was laborious, lots of verses. Um, Hope I didn't lose you along the way. But I hope also that you can come back and settle on some of this concrete that we laid down as we go through some of these other passages um, and begin to, to build up, starting with Genesis. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, it's your word, and you uh, said it will go out and accomplish what you desired it to do. And so we ask that you would be represented correctly through your word and uh, through the teaching of your word. More than anything, we'd be built up and edified and be able to do those things that you prepared for us to do. So we pray for all those who came out. You get them home safely tonight. And um, we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.